Hi, it's Jonathan. Welcome to episode 68 of Mosin at Large. Your reactions continue to come in on Apple's latest software updates. Mainstreaming, special schools, or a combination of the two, what's the secret source to getting the best education possible for blind people? And there's a lot more besides. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really do appreciate that. It's starting an hour later for me. Well, sort of. This is the time of the year, one of two times of the year, where we start fooling about with time, which I think could cause some sort of hole in the fabric of the space-time continuum or something. But anyway, here we go again. So the clocks have gone forward in New Zealand. They will go back in the United States eventually, just before Election Day, actually. And when that happens, the show will start another hour later for me. So it's all pretty crazy, all this messing about with time. At least I don't have to work internationally for my job with people in other time zones now. But of course, with Mushroom FM, I still have to get my head around all the time zone changes. It's crazy, I tell you. And what is also crazy is that this morning, my alarm did not go off. Oh. I know. You're lucky I'm here. I... And one of those people who, if I set an alarm, I tend to wake up just before it. Now, I can't obviously rely on this, but luckily it worked this time. Apple has had a history of bugs around daylight saving time. So I'll be interested to hear whether other New Zealanders experience this either this morning, it's Sunday here as I put this together, or Monday, where it's more likely that more alarms are going to go off. But the alarm just didn't go off. I mean, it's not that it went off early. It just didn't go off at all. So I set the alarm. I have a recurring alarm that during the winter months wakes me up at 4.15 every Sunday morning so I can do the show. And last night I deleted that alarm and I said to Siri, wake me up at 5.15 
a.m. every Sunday. And when I go into the clock app, it is indeed there. 5.15 a.m. alarm on every Sunday. But it didn't go off. Oh, my word. Imagine if I had slept through the alarm. I do have the scary thought about sleeping through the alarm or the alarm not going off. I've never failed to turn up to a show yet due to something like that. It must happen one day, right? It must happen one day. Anyway, I should say I am running the iOS 14.2 beta, so perhaps it is confined to that, whatever problem I have. On the live edition of Mosin at Large on Mushroom FM, we played an unboxing of my Apple Watch Series 6. And because that's kind of a separate thing that people might want to refer to in future, we are going to make that a separate episode of the podcast. That'll be Mosin at Large episode 69, and we'll publish that midweek sometime. So if you're interested in the whole unboxing of an Apple Watch, uh, upgrading from an old one, maybe you're considering getting an Apple Watch for the first time ever, or you're upgrading for the first time ever, we'll cover that in this special edition. Now, it's been an interesting week here at Mosin Towers. Henry's little sister, one of them anyway, is getting married shortly. Henry is my wonder son-in-law, Heidi's husband. And when Heidi and Henry got married, not only did I do my father of the bride thing, and I think I might have mentioned in the past that this is one of two occasions where my Apple Watch sent me this alert to say, you don't seem to be doing anything, dude, but it feels like your heart rate's unusually high. Is everything okay? So that was the reaction that being the father of the bride had on me sitting in the audience once I'd walked her uh, into the ceremony. It was an outdoor ceremony, and then I sat in the audience, and it was a very emotional moment. And next thing you know, I get a ping from my Apple Watch about my heart rate. How very cute. Thank you, Apple Watch. Glad it wasn't running developer beta 4. <laughs> um, and the other time was the Cricket World Cup, but I'm not even going to talk about the Cricket World Cup. Anyway, when Heidi and Henry got married, I did the audio and we took some professional gear there. We did a very nice recording of it using a mixer and good quality microphones. And so the standard has been set for the rest of the tailors now. And so Henry said, can we use some of your audio gear? And I said, of course you can. And we talked about a little mixer that I have that has a 9-volt battery. Have you ever put your tongue on a 9-volt battery, by the way? If you haven't put your tongue on the terminals of a 9-volt battery, then you've got to live, man. It's fun. <laughs> anyway, 9-volt battery, mixer, really great for outdoor events because uh, Henry's sister is having another outdoor wedding just like Heidi and Henry had. So I gave them the mixer and then I said to Heidi, we're going to have to use a microphone of some kind and the microphone has to have XLR so you can use one of the Q2U microphones. And I keep all these in my portable recording kit because I've got my Zoom F6, a couple of Samson Q2Us, and I can just take it out with me whenever I want to do some good quality mobile recording, which in this COVID era, to be honest, is not very often at the moment. <laughs> So they left happy with all the gear that they wanted. And then we were going to do the unboxing of the Apple Watch in the studio, Heidi and me, a few days later when the Apple Watch arrived. And she came into the studio and she said, we've only got one microphone in here. And I said, why have we got I me? Mean, because I've got two Heil PR40s, which are pretty nice mics. They're not cheap, unfortunately. But they are really good. I like these microphones a lot. So I have one and then we have one for guests. And Bonnie uses that one and other people who I interview here in the studio use that one. 
So when Heidi said, we've only got one microphone, and here I was somewhat surprised, and I said, why? And she said, because we took it for Henry's sister's wedding. And I'm like, what? I didn't say that you could take that microphone. She said, yes, you did. So, So it turns out that she didn't know what the Q2U was. She didn't know that when I said you can take the Q2U, I was referring to one of the microphones in my little recording kit, which sits upstairs so that I can just grab it if ever I need to go on the run and record something. So it just goes to show communications are fun things. But boy, I was surprised that that didn't set my little Apple watch off because my heart was a pounding when she told me that one microphone in here was missing until she explained why it was missing. So when you hear the unboxing of the Apple Watch, that's why it sounds a bit dodgier than normal, because Heidi had to use one of the other Q2U mics because the Heil PR40 from the studio was back at her house. I'm pleased to say all has now been restored in time for the Bonnie Bulletin, and she has a Q2U, which is what I told her she could take. Oh, yeah. It's been a busy week technology news-wise, with Amazon announcing a range of new products. It is such a shame that Amazon doesn't stream these events live. They invite journalists into a call, I guess it is at the moment at least, some sort of uh, conference call, and they brief the journalists. But you can't watch that presentation if you are a mere mortal. But there are some interesting things. The Echo range has been redesigned, both the Echo Dot and the main Echo. The main Echo next generation is going to be a kind of a hybrid between the traditional Echo and the Echo Plus. It's got all the hub features built in. And the Echo Dot is taking on a spherical shape. And apparently both devices sound better than they did. And at least with the Amazon Echo, you're going to have this new onboard processing of audio. And that means that a lot of the heavy lifting of the interpreting of speech requests are going to be done on the device. And that should save some milliseconds in terms of getting a response back from the soup drinker. So if you're in the market for new Echoes, it sounds like they could be worthwhile. And the thing that really intrigued me that they announced is this new drone. I've always wanted a drone. There's just something cool about it. And Bonnie says, you can't have a drone. What are you going to do with a drone? Well, anyway, I think this drone sounds good from Amazon. It sort of flies around your house for security purposes. And it can inspect what's going on. And then if it finds something untoward, it will report it to you. And then when it's done its duty, it puts itself back on its charger until the next event, sort of Roomba style. I mean, admittedly, it's got a huge gimmick factor, and apparently it does make a noise, so you can hear this thing flying around. I hope it's not sort of like, I think it's a mosquito or something. (laughs) So, some new stuff coming from Amazon, and they really are innovating in this space, aren't they? Fantastic products. Just a quick advisory on my book, Meet Me Accessibly, which is a guide to Zoom cloud meetings from a blindness perspective. I did this book, and I think it was 2017, because I had really come to appreciate Zoom, got all enthusiastic, and decided to share it with the blind community. Then at about February or early March, I saw this massive spike in sales, and it was clear to me that the reason for that was people wanting to become familiar with Zoom due to the pandemic, and I felt really uncomfortable about profiting from the pandemic. So I refunded people who had purchased it recently, and then I made it free. Now, if you've been following the technology news or even just using Zoom, 
you will know that it has changed a lot in the last six months. Sadly, the popularity of Zoom has brought with it the attention of lowlifes who come in and do what is now known as Zoom bombing. So Zoom had to increase their security, the way that you enter meetings. There have also been changes over that time to the user interface and improvements to accessibility. So I've been monitoring all of this closely because I knew there would come a time quite soon when my audiobook on Zoom was just too outdated to be of any help, really. It could create more confusion than it enlightens, and I don't want that to be the case. I think we have reached that point now with the most recent version of Zoom, which has added more accessibility features. And so on the 30th of September, I am going to withdraw that Zoom book. It won't be available from Mosin.org after the 30th of September. So if you really want it for some reason, there is still some relevant material, then go and grab it. It is still free from Mosin.org slash Zoom. That's Mosin.org slash Zoom. Now, the big question that everybody asks is, are you going to do another one? Are you going to do an update? I would like to, but I'm not in the business of producing these tutorials anymore. Mosin Consulting has closed. I do this podcast as a hobby, and actually this podcast is quite a time-consuming hobby. So don't bank on me doing another one. I may just get the urge one day, maybe during my summer when I've had a bit of a recharge to go into the studio and update it, but don't necessarily expect it. And there are other good resources out there that can teach you about Zoom from a blindness perspective. So thank you for the support of the book. I've received some really lovely feedback on it, and I do appreciate that. And before we move on, just confirming that, as I said I would, I have now closed the WatchOS petition, and it ended up with 2,208 signatures. I was really impressed with the quality of some of the comments that I received, and there are many familiar names on the signature list, some senior leaders in the blind community, and I appreciate that. And there are people whose names I recognize from past things I've been involved with or this podcast. So thank you so much for taking the time to sign this. It is a really important point of principle that blind people are members of the public too. Public beaters should not mean anyone in the public unless you're blind. And I'll be submitting that to the right person at Apple with a very respectful letter commending Apple on all that they have done and also inviting them onto the show if they'd like to respond to the petition. And I'll make the point that while I don't do softball interviews and I can ask tough questions, I always do respectful interviews. So that would be great. But irrespective of where it goes, I think it was important that on this one we stood up and we were heard. Thank you so much for the fantastic response. More feedback coming in on Apple things, and Petra says, Hello, Jonathan. With everything the iPhone, Apple Watch, and iPad can now do, I'm overwhelmed most of the time. How on earth would someone who buys one of these devices now ever learn how to use them? I'm so glad I got my devices while you were still writing the iOS without the iBooks. Judy Dixon and Anna Dresner wrote some great books, too. Well, thanks so much, Petra, for the very positive comments about the iOS without the iSeries. One of the things I also miss producing is the Freedom Scientific Getting Started audio tutorials on the iPhone. That was a very comprehensive walkthrough of setting up your iPhone from scratch if you were just unboxing it for the first time. Plenty of audio samples and things like that. And there really isn't anything equivalent out there that is current that I'm aware of. 
And that's a shame because there is a market, I think, for a professionally recorded, well-researched, well-produced series of audio modules that take you through every aspect of the iPhone. And that's what that Freedom Scientific series of modules used to do. But yes, you're right. Anna's done a great book on getting started with the iPhone. And there are new editions that come out of that from time to time. So it's a very good resource. And of course, there are lots of good Judy Dixon books. She's prolific, prolific. And also, I want to give a shout out to all the great assistive technology instructors around the world who are changing lives every day. And they may not get the publicity, but one-on-one, They are walking through the iPhone with new users, getting them familiar with it, and making a difference. A lot of that one-on-one and group work going on. There are also social media groups and email lists that people can draw from for iPhone knowledge as well. Andy Ribsch is writing in and says, Hi, Jonathan. I am extremely happy about an elemental improvement when using the good old telephone in iOS 14. Imagine that. The iPhone makes phone calls too. Who'd have thunk it? I have always preferred to use the auto-select speaker in call feature. For those who don't know what that is, speakerphone switches on when you take the phone away from your head and switches back to handset mode when the phone is close to your head. There were always two problems with this feature. First, if you were listening on the speakerphone while the call was ringing through, it would switch back to handset as soon as the other person answered. This is fixed. Worst. When you were listening to a call ringing the phone on your ear, it might loudly switch to speaker. This might only happen 20% of the time, but it was unpredictable. I'll give it a few more days before trusting this, but I believe it no longer happens. And email now from Iona. So for the purposes of this show, she's called Iona Braille Display. Get it? (laughs) Iona Braille Display. Hi, Jonathan. What exciting tech time, she says. Thanks for your tips and for providing such a nice platform for exchanging ideas and sharing tips on the show. I have a bad problem with Brilliant 40 that makes using it practically impossible. Focus jumps erratically when I use cursor routing buttons and at times cells stop refreshing and remain stuck on some characters, even when I pan left or right, making editing with it impossible. I had to dig up an old iPhone using iOS 13 to read my music scores reliably. I have not heard of anyone else having such problems, but given that the display works well with iOS 13, I am sure it is not a bug with the display. Anyone else experiencing such issues? About Embraille, it is still totally usable. When you open the app, you hear Embraille Direct Touch Area. Use the rotor to enable direct touch for this app. What you have to do here is use the rotor until you hear the option direct touch. Here you flick up or down to turn it on. From this moment on, the braille keyboard of the app starts working as usual. I hope this helps those who, like me, enjoy using mBraille for writing on the iPhone. And a later email from Iona, she says, since 14.2 beta, it works much better. Still, often it resets the display, but the stuck cells that would not refresh are almost gone. Well, that's good. It still sounds like it's not perfect. So hopefully you are in touch with Apple and they're engaging with you to try and resolve the issue. Hey, Jonathan, this is Peggy Kern and speech off. I have a very unique problem uh, that just started yesterday, and I can't remember. I 
think the watch update and phone updates were on Wednesday. So I'm wondering if something happened when I updated to cause this. But my problem is that my workouts are no longer appearing in the fitness app on the phone. When I go in there, I see a couple of walks from Thursday, but not my major workout. And I don't have any of my workouts or walks showing from today. When I go into the watch and start poking around, I can find my current workouts. I can't even remember where I found them. I've been poking around all afternoon. But I I can find them in the watch. And I saw an award for a workout I did this morning, even though the workout doesn't show under workouts in the fitness app. The one thing I, I noticed is that when I looked in the health app, I see under sources, there's like five Peggy's Apple Watch, Peggy's Apple Watch, Peggy's Apple Watch. And the funny thing is I've only had three Apple Watches, but there are five Peggy's Apple Watch, Peggy's Apple Watch. And in some places, I can't remember if it's in the health app or where it was, but I was able to tap on them and it would say, this Apple Watch is no longer paired with this phone. And my current watch is somewhere in the middle of all those Peggy's Apple Watches, but I can't tell in order to delete or sort them without going into each separate one. So, you know, I I don't want to delete what I shouldn't delete and I want to keep what is pertinent. And when I look under my Apple ID, the only Apple Watch that is allowed to have access to my Apple ID is my current Apple Watch. So that looks good. I mean, everything else I un- unpaired, but there's some kind of glitch somewhere that's not letting my current Apple Watch write to the fitness app. And it just started yesterday and it got worse today. So I'm just wondering if you or any listeners have any thoughts on what I might try. I've reset the watch, rebooted the phone, rebooted the watch, closed the apps out of App Switcher and all that fun stuff. And I'm I'm just not sure what to do from here. Well, first of all, Peggy, way to go living the iOS 14 stereo recording dream. I'm assuming it might be Just Press Record that you are using there. Just Press Record have come out with an update for iOS 14, which offers stereo support for those devices that are compatible with such a thing. So sounding very nice. Now, Let's all join together in a little chant. Are you ready? One, two, three, four. Peggy's, Peggy's Apple, Apple Watch. Peggy's, Peggy's Apple, Apple Watch. Watch. What the soup's the matter with Peggy's, Peggy's Apple, Apple Watch? Don't be a bozo. Oh, I'm sorry. It was just the way she so rhythmically said it. I don't know what the matter is there, Peggy. It could be a Bluetooth pairing issue, but possibly not. Because I imagine that Apple Watch talks to the cloud directly for fitness data to upload it. Because the cellular watches must have to do that. But I don't know any of this for certain. So I guess it's foolish of me to speculate. You could, if you want to continue to troubleshoot this, you said you reset the watch. And I presume that is the warm reset that you can do by pushing the digital crown and the side button together and holding them down for 10 seconds or so. 
and letting the watch reboot. So I think that's the reset you are referring to. You could go another step further and try unpairing the watch and then setting it up as a new watch and restoring from the last backup that you did. Of course, one of the dangers of doing that is that if something's got stuck and your fitness data isn't being uploaded to Apple Health, then you might lose some things, including your precious move streak. Oh, no. So proceed with caution. So I think the best thing to do would be to contact the team at Apple Tech Support and see what they advise. But what I can say is that it isn't happening to me. But my configuration is slightly different from yours in that I'm running watchOS 7.01, but I am running iOS 14.2. Believe me, I wish I were not, but I am. So if anybody else is having this issue running the combination that you are, that is to say the 0.01 releases of both iOS and watchOS, then please let us know. But it could be just something that's gone a bit amiss with your pairing or your Apple ID or something like that, Peggy, and that Apple support can probably sort you out. And speaking of stereo recording, as we were just a few moments ago, hi, Jonathan, my name is Sarah Gretto, and I am a new listener to your podcast. Welcome. I've had several blind friends highly recommend listening to you, and since I have begun listening... I have thoroughly enjoyed every episode I have heard so far. You do a very nice job, and I've always come away with some new information, tips, and tricks I've learned while listening. Thank you, Sarah. You should be my agent or something. (laughs) I listened to your demonstration last week of some of the new features in iOS 14. In that episode, I heard you mention that in voice memos, we would now be able to record in stereo. Since upgrading to iOS 14, I have done a couple of test recordings using voice memos, and they have still been mono. I have gone and looked at my voice memo settings, and there is nothing in there about recording in stereo, and I have even double-tapped on the enhanced button, but it still records in mono. I have an iPhone 11, so I have the stereo microphones. Could you please tell me what settings to change so my recordings will be in stereo, or is this a bug in voice memos that Apple needs to fix? Thanks again for delivering such a wonderful podcast. Keep up the good work. Well, it's nice to have such a friendly listener tuning in. Welcome to you, Sarah. The answer to your question is that in iOS 14, Apple has made an API available, which is what I alluded to in that demonstration. API stands for Application Programming Interface. And it means that developers have the option of adding to their recording apps stereo recording with the built-in mics. So it doesn't just happen. It's something that has to be enabled with a new build of the software. At this point, Apple's Voice Memos app is not one of those apps that has chosen to add that. It could be that they didn't want it kind of going out in the beta. I have no idea what the rationale is. Another possibility is that they don't intend to add it because they perceive voice memos as being a kind of basic, no-frills recording app, although the enhanced feature is pretty cool, as you probably would have heard. You can definitely hear a difference when that is enabled. Uh, But no, no stereo recording in voice memos yet. However, a number of apps are now appearing in the App Store with updates that support stereo recording. You will have heard Peggy's message just a few moments ago. That was in stereo, and that was thanks, I think, to just press record, or maybe she's using another app that has been updated for stereo. The Ferrite recording app, which is a multi-track digital audio workstation for iOS, is also recording in stereo, and I believe its sibling, HocuSci, is also recording in stereo. 
There may be others too. I have a lot of iOS audio apps, but so far those are the only ones in my list that have put out an update to support this new audio API. So there's your answer, Sarah. If you do want stereo, you'll have to use a third-party app for now. Hello, Jonathan and all Mosin at Large listeners. This is Bryant here. I jumped on board with the beta versions as I usually do. There was a pretty serious bug with screen recognition back in the early uh, beta cycles that rendered it almost unusable, but that's long since been fixed, and screen recognition is really a cool feature. The app library, I'm not sure that I really have a use case for, mainly because I think there needs to be a shortcut to get there rather than having to scroll up past your pages to get there. If there was a shortcut to get there, I might use it a little bit more, but I just find that it takes a little bit longer than I'd want to get to the app library. And plus, I have my apps organized the way that I want. Um, Backtap, I have I have found really useful. I actually have it set up for the uh, Castro app to move between next and previous chapters. Thanks, Bryant. Castro shortcuts sure are the bomb in that regard in terms of all the things that you can do. Mickey Quenza writes, I wanted to share a story about updating to iOS 14. I have an iPhone XS Max. I did the -the over-the-air update and was eagerly awaiting the outcome. Well, one hour later and the update hadn't finished. Phone was warm, but not any warmer than it has been with other updates. I didn't want to interrupt the update, so I waited for another hour. Now I was getting concerned. This update didn't work out so well. To make a long story short, the verdict is still out. They think it was a hardware failure. Luckily, I had Apple Care, so now I am the owner of a refurbished iPhone XS Max with iOS 14 on it. As Paul Harvey would say, when I find out what the problem was, I'll tell you the rest of the story. The good news is that after much trial and tribulation, I am happy with the iOS 14 update. Yeah, when Apple comes through with something like Apple Care, they really do come through. There are some amazing support experiences from Apple. But what happened to you, Mickey, is actually why I used to say in my iOS books that from an accessibility perspective, it is still a good idea to update via iTunes. Hardly anybody does, though, because let's face it, most of the time it all just works, right? But it would be great if something could be done so that very basic rudimentary text-to-speech could be available during that update process in iOS. I don't want to cause any consternation, but I thought we could have a conversation across these nations about education and all the various permutations. I'm not sure how long I can keep that up. Education is an interesting topic in a blindness context, so I thought I'd get your views on this topic and perhaps some of your personal recollections and experiences. I suppose the question boils down to mainstreaming versus, I guess they used to call them special schools or schools for the blind. There's something kind of pejorative about the term special, though, don't you think? So mainstream versus schools for the blind. And then you have this sort of hybrid in between. What gives a blind kid the best chance of success? And you can also argue I think rightly so, that it's not just where someone is educated, it's who's doing the education, isn't it? And in some ways, I think they're related. I went to a school for the blind 
and I went there on the day that I started school. And I stayed at that school until I went to intermediate and went to a mainstream school. I was very fortunate, and you may know this if you've heard the biographical series called In the Arena about me, but my parents bought a house very close to the School for the Blind. So I was able to go to school every day and come home. And that's probably one of the biggest tragedies of Schools for the Blind historically, that they did cause, in some cases, some severing of relationships with community and family because people would go from all over the place to a school for the blind. In New Zealand, we only have the one and have only ever had the one. So sometimes five-year-olds were transported from the other end of the country to this school for the blind. It was difficult for the parents and it was difficult for the kids. And as I say, it did cause some severing of family relationships. Also, You did get some boarding school type behavior at schools for the blind that were not always the best. I'm sure that many of us can relate stories of uh, people who worked at schools for the blind who behaved abominably, both teachers and house staff. And if you have heard in the arena, you will know the story that I told about the abuse that I suffered at the hands of one of the teachers at the school for the blind that I attended. Nevertheless, trying to look at it objectively, I think I was really fortunate to get a good mix of education. Sometimes I think that philosophy has gotten in the way of a focus on outcomes. So to me, the outcome that's most important is that you raise a child who is well-adjusted and well-educated. And obviously the settings around that can be quite complex because a good quality education for a blind kid is not as simple as saying, Every disabled child has the right to attend their local school. I agree with that fully. I think every disabled child, in principle, should have the right to attend their local school and mix with their peers like anybody else. The trouble is that these things are seldom resourced well. They can be, but they're seldom resourced well. There are not many teachers in the mainstream school environment who know Braille. And that means that if you put a blind kid in a mainstream class, they are being taught by a teacher who, in blindness terms, is illiterate. So you have these teachers of blind kids, some people call them vision teachers, which is a term I despise because it plays right into the hands of those who think that somehow there's something wrong with using the word blind. Why does a kid who can't see need a vision teacher? You can have all the teaching you want. It's not going to give you vision. Anyway, these teachers of the blind who often do an amazing job, run off their feet often because of lack of resourcing, going to various schools in the area that they serve, trying to give kids instruction in Braille and other blindness techniques. And what anecdotally, anyway, seems to have happened is that there was a period where only the really gifted, capable kids got access to Braille because they had to ration Braille because they were run off their feet. Sometimes it wasn't so much that it was the gifted kids, it was the really blind kids. So if you had sufficient vision to read print, but the prognosis was such that you might end up being a Braille reader, or it took you a very long time to read print, you know, you had to have it magnified, you could potentially get eye strain. Still, a lot of people read print when they should have learned Braille, it would have stood them in good stead. And I suspect that had those kids attended a school for the blind, 
where Braille instruction was plentiful, that would have happened. Not necessarily, though. I do know that there was a period, and some others may have some comments on this, where there was a concept called sight-saving classes. Here in New Zealand, we picked up this trend, I think, from the United States. And uh, sight-saving classes were used for low-vision kids. I think the theory being, if you didn't use it, you would lose it. And that really did cause enormous problems for some of those low-vision kids when they became low-vision adults. And they were struggling with their reading, and that manifested itself in difficulty gaining employment and also difficulty reading to their kids, which is heartbreaking. Nevertheless, it feels like over the years, people have sort of started to look down their noses at schools for the blind. And these days, you often hear that it's only kids with multiple impairments who attend these schools most of the time these days. Now, the UK seems to be a notable exception, at least in the countries that I kind of have caused to keep tabs on regularly. In the UK, there do seem to be these colleges for the blind, and they're well-resourced, and they seem to be doing quite well. I've also attended some schools for the blind in other countries, which are really well-resourced. I mean, some of them have incredible recording studios and all kinds of equipment to help people thrive. So there are these pockets of success, if you will, with some schools for the blind around the world. Despite some of the difficult periods in my childhood that I talk about in in the arena, I still look back with enormous gratitude for the education that I received. Because in that school for the blind environment, I not only learned Braille, and I always had access through my entire school day to someone who was literate in Braille and teaching me and checking my work, I also learned some valuable lessons about blindness skills. I met people in the community, if you will, who I've kept in touch with from that day to this. I think that there is something about blindness that bonds many of us together. It is a significant experience that we can share. And I think the number of contributions that we get on this podcast is a testimony to that. I also had access to music training and things like a choir and that kind of thing that I would not have received in the regular primary school system in New Zealand, for sure. And it meant that when I went to a mainstream school, I was equipped to succeed in that environment. Because my parents bought a house close to the School for the Blind, which was an incredible gesture and sacrifice for them to make, when I went to my local school, it happened to be the school that had a pretty big resource room there. And they would have a couple of teachers there who could help with a range of tasks, including transcribing, etc. In some ways, though, it defeated the purpose of mainstreaming because I had grown up with a lot of the kids who were also attending this school. So even kids who boarded at the School for the Blind went to the school. So they'd go back to the School for the Blind in the evening and they'd stay in their hostel, but they would go to the same mainstream school that I was going to because it was my local school because it was the one where the resource center was set up from the School for the Blind. And what happened then was that because we'd all grown up with one another, We'd gone to school together for seven years or six years or whatever it was. We tended to stick together. So there was this cluster of blind kids, for want of a better term. And we didn't really integrate that. Well, most of us didn't anyway, because we were just enjoying each other's company. We kept those contacts up. And we were interested as blind kids in things that a lot of the sighted kids 
we're not. Many of us were passionate about radio or listening and making tapes and all sorts of things like that, and other kids just weren't into that kind of stuff. I did make some sighted friends, some of whom I've kept in touch with over the years, but it was a bit more them and us, it was a bit more segregated than, say, had I attended a school where I was the only blind kid. And I wonder what that would have been like. I'm sure we have a number of people listening who did attend a mainstream school where they were the only blind kid. How did that work out? Were you integrated? Did you feel that you were accepted? Because the other thing too is that kids can be really cruel. I mean, go on social media and you know that a lot of adults can be pretty cruel too. But there's a kind of a mean streak among some teenagers when the hormones start going and all that kind of stuff. So it can be tough. And I know of a lot of blind kids who experienced terrible bullying at mainstream schools. And at the time, hopefully things have moved on since I was at school, at the time there wasn't a lot of support for bullied blind kids. You were just expected to grin and bear it, or if they punch you, punch back or whatever. I don't think I ever managed that, but I did get a few whacks on the legs in with my white cane. That was always good fun. (laughs) So it can be a difficult environment. But I do feel that because I had that Braille instruction and that grounding in blindness, and also because I did attend a school that had a very good resource room, there was extra help available, that did contribute to my ability to do okay in school. So what is the secret to ensuring that blind kids have the best chance of success in education possible? What worked for you or didn't work for you? When you look back on your education now, do you feel that there was anything that happened to you that held you back? If you feel happy with where you are in life, what do you think was the secret source in the schooling that you got that facilitated that? Some people also kind of look down on schools for the blind because they view interaction with blind people as somehow inferior to interaction with sighted people. I have lost count of the number of blind people I've talked to who have said things like, I really did well at school. I had X number of sighted friends. Like somehow having sighted friends was so superior, a badge of honor compared with having blind friends. Looking forward to your thoughts on all of these things. Tracy Duffy writes, Personally, I think a combination of mainstream and school for the blind is most beneficial. Of course, it's a bit hard to say in current terms, because everything is different for so many reasons. In my own experience, which was many years back, I was pushed harder academically. The School for the Blind offered me opportunity and training in many other areas, though. It was at the School for the Blind where I was taught cane travel, many other basic orientation skills to go along with cane travel, daily living skills, and was given opportunity to be a part of various sports teams, such as cheerleading, Many of these things often don't happen in public school, especially participating in sports, unless the student is very hard-driving and creative or has a family who is. People in the mainstream, even if they are trained in special education, often haven't a clue how a blind person can participate in the usual games and activities. If they do have ideas about adaptation, then you get into what it will cost and how those adaptations won't be available everywhere. Of course, at least here in the US, most students are sent to the local schools now. The trouble is, 
it's often difficult to get teachers who can teach things like Braille or cane travel. Very often, if a student does get this training, it's on a very thin basis. You may get Braille once a week, cane travel every other week, or you may get one intense run of cane travel every day for a month, but then no more until next year. Very often, you will have one or two teachers who are meant to instruct all blind students within a given school district or even within a certain county or something. For myself, even when I was in public school or mainstreamed, I had a Braille instructor. She ran a classroom for all the blind students at that particular school and she was also in charge of our gym classes. If we had not had her, I can't imagine that I would have learned a great deal and certainly wouldn't have been included in games and physical activities. When I first started school, I was sent to all the regular classes, but the teacher had no idea what to do with me, and I ended up just sitting on the side a lot of the time, or being frustrated because I was not included. Thank you, Tracy, for starting off the conversation. Bruce Taves says, I was one of the first rural students in Manitoba to go from K to 12 mainstreamed. For the most part, it worked well for me. Knowing what was coming, they hired a young lady who'd just graduated from high school to go to San Francisco. I guess they had a course for these things there. She learned Braille, with a lowercase b, learned how to teach a young blind student, and by the time I got to grade one, she was ready for me. The only hitch from a blindness perspective was at the beginning of grade five, when the woman who was my consultant turned out to be inappropriate. No, not that kind of inappropriate, he says. She'd pull me out of class, do things like check out grocery stores and try to teach me about them. She insisted I sample the various fruits and so on, such as grapes, explaining to me that's what the store wanted me to do. I'd go home in tears, begging my parents to please talk to the people in the store and tell them how sorry I was for stealing. Finally, my dad had enough, contacted the Department of Education, said some choice words, and after Christmas, this lady was replaced with one of the best consultants I'd ever had. You see, in Canada, we had one school for the blind option in Bransford, Ontario. My dad would not have me live away from the family. He fought tooth and nail to have me mainstreamed. He did not want some government-run institution raising his kid. My brother just recently told me that Dad had been willing to sell his farm and move to Ontario if that's what it would take to keep the family together. That farm was Dad's life. Eventually, after making all sorts of enemies in the government, as Dad put it, I was mainstreamed. The system broke down, though, in high school. Looking back, it's pretty obvious that the school board and the school were looking for all sorts of write-ups and accolades, so I became a showpiece rather than a student. I became micromanaged, not given the same educational choices afforded to other high school students. I'd asked to stay an extra year because I wanted to learn my grade 12 math properly, They insisted I take university entrance math and not the next level down. But that would have looked bad for their write-ups. So, despite the fact that, because my math teacher really didn't want me in his class and had submitted the textbook to be brailed far, far too late, 
and I thus didn't even get the Braille textbook until November, I was pushed through and graduated with a 50.0. If you get a 50.0, the fact that it was a university entrance course is going to do you no good in the eyes of a university. This is just one of the many ways I was micromanaged and treated as a project rather than a student in the later part of high school. The school and school board were very proud of themselves, which isn't to say that I didn't have some wonderful teachers, even in high school. I certainly did. So now where am I? Proofreading Braille for a living for the same Department of Education that used to Braille my books. I don't always enjoy what I'm reading, but I consider it a huge honour to come back and be a part of the agency that helped me so much. Knowing what it is to be one of the students, it's the students themselves that keep me going in this job. Mainstreaming versus School for the Blind? I had my problems, but overall I wouldn't trade mainstreaming for anything. It's an extremely touchy issue for many students and former students. There are no right or wrong answers. I'm proud of what we do, though, for our mainstream students. We have consultants who strongly push for Braille, which I think is a key component in educating a blind child. These consultants are trained in the technology they work with. I know this because I've become something of a tech resource for our consultants, and I get some very good questions. Thanks so much for your contribution, Bruce. A couple of comments on that before we move on to the next one. The first is that I have seen this phenomenon where you have a blind child in an isolated environment and they think the blind child is marvellous and every child is marvellous, aren't they? Every human being is marvellous. But there is an opportunity for mollycoddling. So an outcome that might be just okay for a sighted student because they have so many people who are cheering on this blind child for success, anything that they do is perceived as just being so absolutely wonderful that they've done it at all because they're blind. And I do think that in a school for the blind environment or when you're in an environment when you have a mainstream school with a lot of blind kids or several blind kids in attendance, you do avoid that. What often happens is that those blind students, they really think they're doing very well. They go on to university and then they crash because they realize that maybe they're not succeeding as well academically or with their technology as everybody said that they were, and they really struggle and and they kind of have a fall. And that's very unfortunate. But yes, I have the privilege of being in touch every so often in my job with teachers of blind kids. And so many of them are just genuinely so dedicated to their students' success. We owe them an awful lot. Across the pond, we go to Australia and Tristan Clare says, like you, I've had a mixture of blind school and mainstream education. For the most part, I think it's served me well, but there were downsides to both experiences. I attended a school for the blind throughout primary school. It was a great environment in which to learn blindness skills, particularly Braille, with a lowercase b. Also, as it was incredibly well resourced, We had a pool, state-of-the-art gym equipment and opportunities to have experiences such as roller skating, horse riding and really excellent excursions that most kids in regular schools would not have had access to. On the other hand, ours was a really small school 
and it exemplified some of the worst aspects of the blind community, such as parochialism and competitiveness. Teachers often pitted us against each other, either academically or in the attainment of certain blindness skills. Some people thrived in such a competitive environment, but others struggled, particularly people with additional disabilities. We were also fed the line that our behaviour as individuals reflected on the blind community as a whole, that we had to be better than other people in order to overcome the prejudices of sighted people, thus transferring the onus of prejudice to us as blind people. So although I have made some good friends who I have since been delighted to reconnect with, I wasn't all that sorry to leave the place behind when I was mainstreamed. Our class all transitioned out at the same time. Although we weren't forbidden to stay in contact, we were encouraged to think of mainstreaming as beginning a new chapter of our lives, where we would make new friends. So gradually we drifted apart as our lives changed. I was excited to be going to the same kind of school as my cousins and sighted friends, and I loved my first year especially. It was full of new experiences, such as having friends who lived in the local area so we could hang out at weekends. The thing I disliked most about mainstream schooling was the so-called experts in blindness education that I was forced to interact with. I knew some consummate professionals who really added a lot to their field, but there were others who really shouldn't have been allowed to interact with people, especially teenagers who just wanted to blend in with the rest of their peers. I had teachers who wanted to take me out of class for subjects when there was no need, who had fixed ideas about what subjects I should choose, what career I should aspire to, and even what friends I should be making. No one should ever tell a developing human being to accept their limitations. The phrase should be outlawed. Luckily for me, I had parents who were really great advocates and who taught me to stand up for myself so I didn't have it as bad as some people who were educated at the same time as me. I know of a few people who were forced out of the school system altogether because of pressure from certain support teachers and their particular interactive style. Apart from that, I think I got a lot out of mainstreaming. There was a bit of teasing. Most of it was of the how many fingers am I holding up caliber. But I think I got a lot out of being educated with all sighted peers later in life. For one thing, I learned the ins and outs of sighted culture and not to think of myself as alien to sighted people. This is a good thing because sighted people make up most of the world's population, and I'd hate to be excluded from experiences because I was afraid of stepping outside the safety of the blind community. Thank you, Tristan. Rebecca Skipper is in touch, and she says, I have mixed feelings about mainstreaming versus schools for the blind. I spent grades one through five in a resource room with other visually impaired students. I was mainstreamed for one class and for lunch. Yum. I made few friends, but I have greater memories of pool parties and other events organized by my resource teacher. I was always one grade behind academically. Learning contractions, math symbols, and regular academic subjects was difficult. There was debate about whether or not I would do well mainstreamed, but my fifth grade teacher realized how intelligent I was at the time. She would read selected chapters from the social studies textbook to me, 
and I could recall what I learned just as well as my sighted peers. I credit my resource teacher for insisting that I learn how to spell every word in grade one and for introducing me to Braille. My years in mainstream schooling were some of the most difficult times of my life. It is very difficult to get blindness training when you struggle to keep up academically because teachers did not always get assignments to the TVI in time. My parents and teachers did not always agree. I received blindness training after high school and before starting college. Going to public school gave me a solid education academically, but it was emotionally traumatic. I felt isolated and did not believe that I had control over anything. I am very close to my family now and have a lot of respect for my elementary school teacher and both the mobility instructor and TVIs that I had in high school. However, leaving home for the first time after high school and getting more blindness training was one of the best decisions I made. I gained the skills necessary to advocate for myself and take control of the learning process. I wish I was mainstreamed earlier in elementary school. Education isn't just about getting good grades. In my opinion, it is more important to learn how to adapt and problem solve. I had a Braille speak provided by my local public school in 1999, but I did not get introduced to electronic Braille until 2001 while attending vocational training. I think I would have flourished in public school if I had electronic Braille rather than Braille books. I like the approach the parents took in the movie What Love Sees. The family moved to a city where their blind son could get the blindness training he needed while living with his family. Today, I hope that blindness training can become more prevalent in the public school system. Thanks so much for sharing that, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. And I will check out that movie, What Love Sees. It's not one I've heard of before. Hey, Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here. I thought I'd treat you to a recording using my new mixer. This is the Mackie Pro something or other. I've forgotten the numbers, but boy, it is serving me very well in this age of digital learning. We are back to school for most of the week, but Monday is always a digital learning day, and so I figured I'd upgrade things here. Now all I need to do is take care of the video. I do teach sighted children after all. What a great topic this is, mainstream versus school for the blind. Uh, I really like this topic. It's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. There is no one correct answer. Uh, it's all about the individual. For me, I went to Perkins for nine years from September 74 through June 83. And the, the hardest year was the last year because that was the year that I was mainstreamed. So the 82-83 school year. They had made the determination the year before during the 81-82 school year that I would be returning to Coventry to finish my last three years of high school. And they had attempted to mainstream me then with, with, with a few non-academic courses, but there had been quite a few... Uh, budget cuts in Massachusetts that year, and they just couldn't couldn't pull it off. So, in eighty two eighty three, which was of course my last year at Perkins, they sent me 
with a whopper of a schedule. Three academics, including, believe it or not, the history of Watertown, because as you know, or as I, I would think you would know, Perkins is located in Watertown, Massachusetts. And did you know that the paper bag was invented in Watertown? It's very cool. Um, but three academic courses and uh, a drama slash PE course. And I worked as hard as I've ever worked that year. And that's true to this day. As challenging as college was, um, when it comes to school, either secondary or, or post-secondary, college was a piece of cake compared to Perkins, compared to that year of Perkins combined with Watertown High School. But it shaped my entire life. That year, followed by the, the following three years, the next three years in Coventry, shaped my existence. I am fully convinced that I'm doing what I was put here to do. Not necessarily being a teacher or a music teacher in a public school system, although, you know, most of it is is very enjoyable. It's very rewarding. But I truly believe that my task in life is to help bridge the gap between the sighted and the non-sighted. And I honestly believe that I would never have been able to do that to the extent that I have without being mainstreamed. And I still have one or two people who are very dear friends of mine uh, with whom I keep in touch from Watertown High School and many, many people who I keep in touch with from Coventry High School. And of course, I teach in Coventry. So one of the frustrating things about, you know, having been a student in Coventry and now teaching here is that I know firsthand what they're capable of doing for their impaired and disabled students. And unfortunately, they're not doing the same for me as an impaired and disabled employee. I would never go as far as to say that they're doing nothing because that would just be completely untrue, but they're not doing everything that they could. That having been said, they have given me an opportunity to have my life. The very first relationship uh, I had with a totally sighted girl was a young lady from Coventry High School, and that changed everything from a relationship standpoint. All of my relationships from that point beyond were with totally sighted women. And obviously there are lots of pitfalls there, but um, mainstreaming really did it for me. It's not for everybody. Uh, There are many people uh, whom I went to Perkins with who were never mainstreamed or who, if they were, didn't have the kind of success that was true of my experience. Thanks so much for your thoughts, Nick. John says, I am originally from Singapore, which is a small developed nation in Southeast Asia. The school system left much to be desired, though. I went to a school for the blind, which also had deaf people. There were about 50 people in the school, and that did not lend much to group work and activities. For instance, I was the only one in grade two. We usually had mixed classes, several grades in one room. The school was not a good school. 
Firstly, the group thing. I had no one to discuss any subject knowledge with, and there were virtually no group activities. This was bad as when I went to a mainstream school, I did not have the skills to contribute concretely, especially to a sighted group. Secondly, there was a tendency for students to be pushed into the quote special stream unquote route, which was simply something which teaches you daily living skills without academics, and you would be there until 18 before being sent out to work. There were also some relatively good students who were sent there even though they could cope in the academic stream. I went to a mainstream secondary school, staffed by resource teachers who were shocked at the skills I did not have, such as teamworking, mobility and other blindness skills. Secondary school was a whole other torturous tale which I will not go into here. All in all, I did not have a good experience in the Singapore education system until I went to college, where I had great support and help, even though I was the first blind student there. I am an Australian now, and the university here is great. Pam Quinn says, I was born blind, and it was always assumed that I would attend the School for the Blind in Vinton, Iowa. My mom tried to prepare me, telling me that I would go to school there and that at night I would be living in a cottage with other girls. I thought at the time it was the same for everybody. I went to kindergarten roundup there when I was five, but it was around that time that my parents heard that a program would be started in public school, with an itinerant teacher being there to teach Braille and so forth. So I waited to start kindergarten when I was six, and I went to public school for the duration, along with one other blind student. When I was 14, the School for the Blind invited kids from public school to come to their summer school program. That was my first experience in learning to use a cane and being part of the blind community. Looking back, I feel that I did get a good education, and I am so very thankful that I was able to live at home with my family. I never really felt like I was accepted by the other kids, though, and didn't feel that acceptance until I was in college. Later, when I was an itinerant teacher myself, many of my students talked to me about how lonely they felt because they just didn't fit in. I feel that the ideal situation in my case would have been for my parents to have moved to Vinton so that I could have gone to school there while still living at home, experiencing the best of both worlds. People weren't as mobile back then, though, and giving up a good job to make a move like that just seemed like too much of a risk. It all worked out in the end, but I think that was thanks in large part to the summer school program in Vinton, which opened up many doors for me, resulting in many lifelong friendships, self-confidence and more skills that weren't taught in public school. All this to say that when it comes to mainstreaming versus schools for the blind, there's a lot to be said for both. At least that used to be the case. Not so much these days, and sadly many of the schools for the blind, including the one in Iowa, have closed. Thank you, Pam. Iowa is legendary, isn't it? Because that's where a lot of the original preparatory work was done by people like Kenneth Jernigan and others at the School for the Blind and through the uh, rehab system. And Iowa is such a testimony to the fact that blind people are the best people to take control of our own destinies, teach each other, really just sort of run things that are in our name. 
Just a wonderful example of what's possible. Hello, Mushroom FM. Mushroom FM. It's been a long time. We actually wanted to contribute to the discussion this week uh, because Jack and I have interesting perspectives. Um, I grew up mainstreamed from the time I was five. So I would have a kindergarten class and then I had a, a class with other visually uh, vision, low vision children. And I did that from kindergarten through sixth grade. And then I was in uh, middle school where my classes were with all sighted children. And then I had an itinerant teacher that would come to see me three times a week. And I did that all the way through high school. And additionally, I also started in a classroom of children uh, who were blind from two years, when I was two years old. So I had that experience up through kindergarten. And then Jack has had a, a different experience. And so we, we really thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit. What's yours been? Yeah, I, I went to a school for the blind for eight years and then was mainstreamed in high school. So I would say that for me, I have mixed feelings about whether that was appropriate. While it helped my socialization uh, immensely and it broadened my knowledge of the, quote, real world, quote, I do think it had an impact on my academics because of the experience I had where there was fairly low expectations of blind people, and so that affected my later attempts to get a higher education. And for me, what's interesting is I actually feel the same way about my experience. I believe that uh, the expectations weren't as high for me growing up, and then in my later years when I had an itinerant teacher, the expectations of my teachers in my classrooms weren't high because they didn't have any other exposure or education about blindness or expectations about what they should have expected of me as a student. So I felt that I had some leeway that I may not have otherwise taken. So I don't feel that that prepared me as well as it could have when I got into the, quote, real world, uh, because I didn't have a sense of accountability in the same way, that didn't come until employment came into my life. Uh, that is really when accountability came Same in. here, yes, absolutely. So I kind of wish we had a hybrid model Ooh. where we had, or I mean, ideally what we want is qualified professionals, educated teachers, good socialization, all those things. And that does happen for some line people. But I would also say that if things, you know, were the way they were back then, I know things are significantly different for young people now, access to technology, all those sorts of things. So it can create a greater um, playing, you know, level playing field in that regard. Um, but I would say that if I had to do it again, I would like a hybrid model. Back in the if we had to do it in the same time period with the same kinds of resources. I understand with the same schooling, the same education that we had. If it was back then, you would want a hybrid model. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah, I can see that too. And I think where I'd want the hybrid to come in, where I'd want the blindness schooling to come in, is really in the skills of blindness. 
I feel that Jack had much better blindness skills growing up than I did. More adaptability. Jack had a lot more adaptability, a lot more orientation, I believe, spatial awareness. Some of those things developed in ways that mine absolutely did not. And I think that had I had more uh, blindness skills training that I may have gotten in a school for the blind that was a quality one, I think that would have been really good for me, better cane skills, etc. Regardless of whether I was mainstreamed or in a school for the blind, I wish I had had more blindness skills training growing up. And Jack, you got that at a school for the blind. I missed out on some of that. So Yeah, and I would also say that people have strong feelings about it either way, depending on their success in either. And there's data that shows, you know, some of these more closed environments do produce, on average, less academically capable people. The real issue becomes, as the programs can vary in their comprehensive academics and literacy and all those things, it's, it's a complex subject that really, you know, an education, of course, is to be personalized. And I guess I would say the debate is still on because I definitely feel like we still need to make much more progress than we have. Mosin at Large Podcast. Jesse Weinholz is in touch and says, Hello, Jonathan. Thanks again for the informative podcast. I use Storytel, which is an app that has lots of books in my native language, as well as in English. It costs me six euros per month and allows for unlimited listening. These are commercial audiobooks, but I like the quality a lot. I would love to get into reading more books in Braille with an uppercase B. However, the bookshare service is not available, as far as I can see. Do you know of any way to get their services outside the United States? I believe you're in the Netherlands, Jesse, and perhaps it isn't available there. I don't know, but Bookshare is available in many more places than the United States these days, including here in New Zealand. So I don't know. Perhaps you could check with Bookshare itself or your local blindness library and just check if they have any partnerships either underway now or in the offing. But certainly my understanding is that it is Bookshare's intention to be globally available. Jesse continues to answer the question of Bluetooth speakers. I enjoy listening to my JBL Charge speaker. It is small, produces good sound, and is not very expensive. When at home, I connect to my Raspberry Pi over Bluetooth or AirPlay. This Raspberry connects to my speaker using an external DAC, that's digital analog converter for those not in the know. It takes some time to set up, but I like the fact that it is cheap, very small and gives my speakers a lot more flexibility. I even stream radio on Spotify without having my phone connected. Here's an interesting email from Joe Orozco, and he says, Hi, Jonathan. I listened to your review of Libro.fm. While reviewing their FAQ page, I encountered an accessibility glitch I've encountered across a number of websites in the past couple of months. When running across a link that would open a new window, instead of reading the text of the hyperlink, JAWS Reads opens in a new tab. I observed the same behavior with NVDA. I notified Vispero of the issue since JAWS is my primary screen reader because it is a problem I've seen across Chrome, Firefox, and Internet Explorer. Their initial response was to point out that they cannot solve every accessibility issue, that it was the company's individual responsibility to fix such a glitch. I generally agree, but pointed out this was a problem I had seen across a great number of websites 
and that it might need to be something solved at the screen reader level. I have no idea if this is a new coding syntax in HTML causing the issue. I use such links on my own website and do not see such a glitch. Given your experience, where does the burden lie? I'm so pleased you raised this, Joe, because I have seen this too. And I tend to do all my consumer web surfing on my iPhone. So if I'm doing work things, I'm sitting at my computer and I will do those things on the computer or even some Mushroom FM or podcast related things. But if I'm just reading news or anything like that, most of the shopping I do, I do on my iPhone. And I've seen it with Edge, with Chrome and with Safari on my iPhone. And given that that is the case, that we're seeing this happen across multiple screen readers with multiple browsers, I have a theory. My theory is that this is a problem pertaining to something that one of the big content management systems have introduced. I don't know which CMS it is, although I do have my hunches, but that's what I think is going on. So if you can determine what CMS is being run, on one of these sites where you're seeing this, and then check on another one that you're seeing it on. If it's the same CMS, I think that'll be pretty definitive, and I suspect that if we can get to whoever the CMS developer is, we can get it fixed. Hello, Jonathan, and fellow Mosin at Large listeners. This is Larry from Louisville. Jonathan, your appreciation for the form and the elegance of the iPhone itself. It is a beautiful, beautiful piece of uh, device. It feels good to hold in the hand. It's thin. It's a good weight. And I resisted, like you, putting a cover on that thing uh, for the longest. And what what the cover I really want is a, a leather one from Saddlebag. You know, I don't want one of these things where you have to open it like a portfolio or whatever, of course. And uh, unfortunately, Saddleback doesn't make uh, my preferred phone size, which is the iPhone 8 or the SE. Uh, But they do for the uh, newer, bigger phones. But this is a place uh, here in, uh, I think it's in Fort Worth, Texas, makes some of the best leather goods I have ever seen. In fact, their their motto, I think, is um, <clears throat> they warranty it for a hundred years, and their motto is your kids will fight over it <laughs> when you die. But uh, I did get a uh, briefcase from these people, and I loved it um, as far as the flexibility of being able to carry it either as a backpack or as a messenger bag or actually by the handle of the briefcase. But anyway, back to the uh, the iPhone case, I ended up just with the simple Apple leather case, which is, I think, around $35 or $40. And the, the uh, thing that really sold me on it was not only that it does it feel good and you know the the thing i love about leather is that it gets better with age so i, I was really glad to see that the same case fit from my uh, eight to the se but the first thing i noticed about it that made it so great was that it leveled out the back of the phone so that braille screen input was much more comfortable without having the little bump of the camera to deal with the other thing I noticed, too, is that um, 
it gives it just a bit better of i have a, a rocking chair i sit in with a an arm a wooden arm and it you know the case kind of holds to that a little better and on its uh charging uh stand uh, i have just a little wireless round charger i stick it on at night and without the case it could slide off of there sometimes so i found you know if i have to have a case on this beautiful device that uh i'd uh, at least like to have a, a nice case and, and that apple leather one is a pretty good one but uh i hadn't seen the saddleback leather ones but i imagine they are amazing and then finally i wanted to uh, comment on traveling a little bit i have done a lot of traveling in my career and uh I wish that I had known some of these things early on. And one of them is that if you <laughs> if you act like you know what you're doing, usually people a lot of times will assume you you do, even though we don't always. And I've had <clears throat> some of my best times exploring, well, maybe not my best times, but interesting times exploring airports like on overnight flights and i remember several times coming back from csun and being stuck in the detroit airport from about 2 a.m to 5 a.m and just being able to walk around there where there wasn't many people around or many things going on just as a uh, uh i don't know kind of a way to stay awake and do things or whatever but just interesting to uh see how the gps worked in there and wait till uh, things opened up but <clears throat> what i was uh where i was going with this is traveling light i finally realized after many many years that checking bags is a a nuisance especially for a blind person when you have to get help to the carousel if you do need to get help somewhere you know make it straight out to the ground transportation and um you know, everybody does their trips to the airport a little differently. A lot of times, uh, I mean, I, I specifically don't want any kind of special accommodations. I don't want anybody to meet me. I find it a lot more interesting to um, have, you know, grab one of the passengers. Not literally grab them, of course, but a lot of times you'll get in a conversation with somebody. They'd be glad to walk with you. Um, or if you're walking with your cane or your dog... Um, you know, when someone sees you don't know exactly where you're going, they're they're more than happy to help. Uh, and and I'm not derating Ira or anything like that. And you know, a lot of times in in our own airports, we're already familiar with them. So, uh, but anyway, the the main thing I just wanted to say was traveling light um, is is possible and it's easy, uh, even if you have to take several changes of clothes. Um, there's uh, backpacks that. Uh, in fact, my two sisters and I went through to, to a um, 10-day European uh, trip last year, year before last, and each of us just had one bag because we wanted to be mobile and be able to move around to different cities. And when I'm traveling alone, that has definitely helped me out uh, and, and saved countless hours. Because, you know, not only you have the issue of identifying your bag, which we've all got different ways of dealing with that, but why bother with it? You know, the bigger issue is getting somebody to help you down there or to get to the carousel and then to get out to the taxi. So, anyway, just my two cents on that. Um, 
some travel tips would be a, another great topic for discussion among all the uh, Mosin at Large listeners. Thank you very much, Larry, for another great contribution. Good on you for holding out as long as you did regarding a case for your iPhone. I do agree that the Apple leather cases, if you got to put a case on one, but I mean, why? 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 Why would you? Why would you cover up the beauty, the sheer aesthetic gloriousness of your iPhone with a case? But anyway, if you've got to do it, those Apple cases that are leather are quite nice and minimalist. And I tell you what, I do tend to get a bit frustrated with these people who say, ah, if Steve Jobs was alive, you know, such and such wouldn't be going on. But I have to say, I do think it is fair to say that if Steve Jobs were still alive, we wouldn't have that camera bump. Can you imagine Steve Jobs putting up with that protrusion, protuberance, protuberance at the back of the phone? I don't think so. Anyway, We've got it, and I do appreciate what you're saying about a case potentially leveling out that bump. Regarding travel, absolutely. If you can get away with not having to check in a bag, it just makes your life so much easier, doesn't it? There have been times when I've been traveling for a month or two at a stretch, and it just wasn't possible, particularly with all the gear that I've had to carry around, not to do it. But when you can, it makes things so much simpler. Mika Paikala recommended to me two or three years ago, a service that you can use when you travel and it meets your bag for you. And for a fee, for a consideration, it takes your bag to the hotel. And the glory of that is that you can get straight to your ground transportation when you land with your carry-on luggage, in which you probably have any valuable electronic equipment you're taking anyway, like laptops and tablets, that sort of thing. So you have pre-booked this thing ahead of time. They monitor when your flight lands. They get the bag for you and they take it out. I used it once and it was a really difficult thing for me. I can't even remember what the name of it was, but there are probably several such services. The one that I use, the one that Mika recommended to me, was not surprisingly geared for international travelers. They didn't seem to be able to cope with the fact that often if you are traveling internationally, you will keep your local phone number. They didn't seem to want to have a New Zealand phone number in their system that they would have to call or text to give you updates and check in on how things were going and that sort of thing. And I thought, that's extraordinary, really, isn't it? Because you're ruling out so many travelers who travel internationally who could be fatigued and are happy to pay a little bit of a premium so that they can just walk out and jump in a cab or an Uber or whatever and get to their hotel and wait for their bag to turn up. So it was a real hassle trying to get it to work for me. And I think I had to call them and they had to make all sorts of workarounds and stuff. When I actually used it, I found myself stressing out about it anyway. You know, have they got my bag? When is it going to turn up? You know, because they it, it's like one of those shuttle buses that goes to the different hotels. They do the circuit with all these bags they have to drop off. And you think, when is mine coming? I just want to sleep. I want a change of clothes, on and on. So I don't think I would use it again. But that is one potential workaround if you just have so much stuff that you can't help checking in a suitcase. But travel tips are a great idea, and we'll look forward to uh, hearing about those. And also, if anybody has, I mean, if anybody, surely nobody else puts cases on their iPhone, do they? Surely no one else does. But if someone else does happen to, sacrilege, sacrilege. And you have any recommendations for cases, you can share those as well. 
But all this discussion about the travel and the bags um, does remind me that a good travel tip is that if you're traveling internationally, it can be really handy to have a dual SIM iPhone. This is one of the cool things about the new generation of iPhones. So you can keep your local SIM with you for people who need to call and text you on your local number. Just be mindful of roaming charges and make sure you've got the best deal you possibly can with your carrier for roaming in the country that you're in. Sometimes you can buy bundles of minutes and data. But if you've got a second SIM available to you, be it an eSIM or the physical SIM, because your own SIM might be an eSIM, your local SIM could be an eSIM, use that second SIM to get a carrier local in the country that you're in, because then you can give people local numbers. If you're going to get things delivered and you want people to call you, People don't take kindly to having to call an overseas number if you're getting, say, I don't know, Uber Eats or, or whatever, you know, if, you, if you're trying to live on the cheap a little bit. So definitely get a SIM from a carrier in the country that you're spending time in. That is a really good thing because also data will be cheaper. But the other thing that people don't often realize is that when you are roaming with your local carrier, your data's phoning home, so there can be quite a bit of latency when you're using the web, even if you have got an attractive roaming deal. So a local carrier's SIM with a good call text and data bundle is the way to go. And often you can get some really good prepay deals. Now I am trembling just a fraction as I have incurred the wrath of Tiffany Jessen. No, she says, Mr. Jonathan. I know you're not a fan of cases, and yes, I agree, some of them are damn terrible looking, but I can be very hard on my devices, and cases have extended the life substantially. For example, I had my last phone, the 5S, up until last winter. It was actually still functioning at that point. In fact, I still occasionally use it as a book-slash-podcast-slash-otherwise-Wi-Fi device at home when my primary phone is charging, but the battery was crap and I was about to sign up for Ira and felt it was better to replace the device over the battery. Anyway, I wanted to share my fabulous case story. I replaced my phone in January of 2019, and though there are a lot more options, especially less expensive options, I decided to buy the case there in the store, as I wanted to be able to pick from touch. The one I picked does look safe enough for the phone, without being huge and gaudy. Winds up, it is an Otterbox case, which I know from work has a good reputation, so all was well. Like I said, I can be hard on my devices, so along the way, the case did crack. What the heck do you do to your phones, Tiffany? (laughs) This was along the side in the corner where the camera is, but the phone was still safe, so I ignored it. Later, it cracked again this time near the same corner, but on top. This essentially broke the entire corner off the case, which obviously was no longer acceptable given my reputation. What, your reputation for breaking phones? (laughs) She says this is around May of this year, so I had had it for a good 16 months by this point, but the manufacturer's reputation is of having a lifetime warranty. I went online read the stipulations of the warranty, felt I was covered, so started filling out the form. 
It's a dynamic form where you kind of drill down to your case, first tablet or phone, Apple or Android, model of iPhone, and finally, you get to the model of case. I had no idea what the model of case was called, so found a link which said something like, can't find your model, contact us. Okay, that's my Alex. I'm not sure if you were using Alex, Tiffany, but I'll, I'll let you get on with your story. The form is pretty much the same type of fields as sending an email, but I filled it out describing the case. Though the automated reply said there was a backlog that may take more than the usual 24 hours, I received a response quickly that said, it sounds like you have the whatever model. Give me your address and I'll put one in the mail. I was surprised, to say the least, as I was expecting to have to go back to the form and pick the model. But I gave the address and immediately got a shipping notice. Beautiful. The case came. All was well. But now that I had a nice new case, I thought I would replace the cracked cover on the face of the phone. This is not one of the cheap, flexible plastic stickers, but the thin glass stickers that feels pretty. It came with my first case, but was not included with the replacement case. The edges of the glass were missing little chips. Good gracious! So so back to the email support. Actually, I replied on the same claim, stating that I would like to replace the glass. I was glad to pay for it, but wanted to know what the name of it was so that I could get the same one. I received an email promptly which said, No problem, I just put it in the mail. At no time was I asked for proof of damage or even proof of purchase. Remember, I bought it from the phone provider and not directly through them, so they have no way to know I wasn't fibbing. I said I would gladly show proof of damage with a picture, or maybe somehow I'd be able to dig up some proof of purchase, but they were not concerned at all. The website even says you should pay for shipping and tax when replacing but I was never even prompted for that. I did email them back, thanking them, and also suggesting that they become at least a little more rigid with the rules. Granted, at $40 for a simple piece of plastic, Otterbox cases are kind of expensive, but I'm sure with policies like this, they are probably taken advantage of a lot more than people admit. Finally, in regard to the person last week who asked about placing the glass properly, I don't know if it's always the case with all their models, but my glass thing came with a plastic frame. Just like real picture frames, it is open wider on the back side and curves in a tad bit on the front side. What you do is, of course, use the provided alcohol or something wet wipe to clean the phone from all hand oils, then the provided cloth to clear of any smudges. Now... Place the frame down so that it is front side down, then peel off the paper from the back of the glass and place the glass sticky side up when dropping it into the frame. Now you take the newly cleaned phone and place it face down when dropping it into the frame. Ta-da! The glass is exactly centered and lined up correctly with even space around the edges in order to have room for the case to cover from the back later. You can take the phone out of the frame now or leave it in while you flip it over. Included with the glass cover, frame and wet dry cleaning wipes is also a rigid plastic tool, slightly smaller than a credit card maybe. One edge is thinner 
kind of like knives are wide on top and slightly thinner on bottom. Anyway, it is not really sharp, but it was covered with a piece of tape for safety. So I peeled that off and then used that in a slanted kind of windshield wiper action to push down on the glass and force out all the bubbles while using a shaving action to swipe outwards. Now my 20-month-old phone has finally been updated and it looks brand new again. Yeah, but does it look like an iPhone with all of that? <laughs> she, she says, actually, the case is clear, so it isn't honestly all that bad. You mostly only see the color of the phone, white, but mixed in the clear is some sparkle or glitter. You can't feel it as the case is completely smooth. Maybe the sparkles are immature, but it's fitting for me. The best case I've heard of is several years ago at SFL. I was talking with Judy Dixon and someone commented about her case. Apparently, when holding it up and tilting it at her head, it looked like red wine was pouring out, which sounds very creative. You never know what's out there these days. Thank you, Tiffany. John, however, has a different view. He says, I agree with you wholeheartedly that a case, no matter how good it is, spoils the sanctity of the device. Well, that's a good way of expressing it. The new iPhone is to be shown off and not hidden away in a case with three exclamation marks. Most of my friends disagree, he says, and puts a case over it. It is not for me, though. Hello. When it comes to audiobooks, I find that the way a narrator can mispronounce things will really throw me off. Uh, One thing that's uh, quite common nowadays is for instead of words such as success and suggest being said properly, people have taken to saying suggest and success. And I absolutely hate that. And I wonder, are there other people who have a strong dislike, for example, for narrators that say nuclear instead of nuclear? I just get livid when I hear things like that. The other thing that I hate in corporate speak, well, I call it corporate speak, is the overuse of impact, impactful when when people say that this will impact our business, or if they're talking about something positive, they'll say this will impact this will have a great impact on it. You know, why not say that something will help our business or hurt our business? Everything is also being iced to death, systematized and the like. It seems that people think that one must use $20 words to get across a $2 concept. I look forward to seeing whether that message incentivizes people to get in touch and discuss the impact it had on them and get off my lawn. <laughs> well, two separate issues there, I think. There's pronunciation. And of course, another little pet peeve of mine is pronunciation. People actually mispronounce the word pronunciation a lot as well. And then the fact that English is an evolving language, isn't it? If you had somebody come back from the 1800s, notwithstanding the fact that there have been all sorts of technological changes, but just the way we use words evolves over time. The word gay immediately comes to mind. I suppose impact would also be another example of this. 
Don't we just have to move with the times, dude? And just accept that language evolves, it changes, it's a living, breathing thing. I do agree with you about pronunciation, though. And I do find myself getting annoyed. I should just let it go, let it go. Ah, where's my frozen DVD when I need it? (laughs) I mean, for example, we had a New Zealand prime minister for far too long who mispronounced the name Australia, and he would say Australia all the time. A lot of people do this here. And they use like a SH sound in words like Australia and strong. And when they're waffling on at the behest of their consultants about strong and stable leadership, it bugs the soup out of you or bugs the soup out of me. And then, of course, we have our current prime minister who sometimes talks about something and anything. Why do people add a K to some of those words? Where does that even come from? She also has this extraordinary habit of making words with a T in them sound like a D. So she might say, let me reiterate, don't push the button. (laughs) I don't know where that actually a lot of young, I have to say, female New Zealanders do this. And I'm not sure where it's coming from. And there was a really good example of this the other night, actually, when our prime minister was debating the leader of the opposition, because we have an election coming up on the 17th of October. And throughout the debate, Jacinda, and no, it's not Jacinta, it is Jacinda Ardern, mentioned on several occasions that she had policy that, in her view, was doing double duty. But every time she said it, she said double duty. And it was quite ironic because Judith Collins is the leader of the opposition. And she kept saying double duty, so much so that it became a sort of a meme on Twitter with people pointing out that she keeps saying double duty. Very strange. Petra says, I love words. I get a kick out of how they're used. I don't think some people realize that frustration or frustrated, a combination of frustrated and flustered, isn't really a word. I've never heard anybody use that. Petra continues, I have heard you say preventative measures before, so I looked it up in the dictionary with my opticon, and there isn't such a word in there. I believe the correct word is preventive. No, we would never say preventive in New Zealand, Petra. That would be considered bad grammar. So if you don't have preventative in your dictionary, then I can only assume that it is another of those linguistic differences. I actually got uh, pulled up a couple of weeks ago because I was talking about beta versions of software. And somebody from North America rose and said, it's beta. That's the correct pronunciation. And again, that's the American pronunciation. Beta is American, beta is everywhere else in British English. And in fact, I think possibly Canada also does beta rather than beta. But everybody else is doing beta. So with all of this malarkey going on, little wonder that Bloomsbury, wasn't it? Wasn't it Bloomsbury or something? Had to translate Harry Potter into American English. And actually, when I was writing iOS without the I... That was a Mosin Consulting publication that was picked up by National Braille Press. And I was absolutely determined that I was going to write in New Zealand English with New Zealand English spelling and New Zealand English terminology, partly because I wrote it and I published it and we had an agreement that NBP could publish it too. So it was a New Zealand publication that someone else picked up but also because I think it does Americans a little bit of good to actually realize that the rest of the world does spell and say some things differently, like preventative and orientate. 
And so in the end, they actually had to put a little thing in the beginning of the book to say this uses British English spelling and word conventions. Extraordinary. A couple of Sonos questions coming in this week. Michael Bullis says, I know you have a Sonos Arc. What? You're going to steal it from me? This sounds very intimidating. I know you have a Sonos Arc. I see. I think I think he might be just curious, to be fair. Anyway, he says, Sonos uses technology that claims to send music out further to the left and right than where the speakers are. In other words, usual left-right speaker placement would say that you create an equilateral triangle between you and the speakers. That would put you three or four feet in front of the speakers. How much do you find that Sonos expands the stereo field beyond that? In other words, how far can you sit away from the arc and get good stereo separation? Thanks for the email, Mike. I definitely hear a difference between the stereo separation on the arc and on the play bar. And I think what's happened is that they have taken some of the technology they had to develop for Dolby Atmos and essentially used it to further expand the stereo field. My perception is that the stereo field is more enjoyable in more places, but I don't have a definitive answer to this. And that's because I have my seats that I normally sit in in the living room. And when I perform true play, I sit in that seat. And of course, with a sound bar from Sonos, you do two rounds of true play. For those who don't use Sonos and don't know what true play is, it's a process by which you use your iPhone to get acoustic modeling of the room for Sonos to equalize itself, to tweak its signal, to give you the best listening experience for the environment that you're in. And with most Sonos speakers, you only do that once. With soundbars, you do it twice, once from the place that you listen most, and then you walk around the room. So when I sit, I always sit in the same place for movie watching and music listening, and so it's optimized for that. My perception is, though, that the stereo sound is better no matter where you sit. And Jason Stradone says, Hello, Jonathan, as always, I have been enjoying all the content you have been providing as of late. I am curious to know if you or any other listeners have found a way to change stations with Siri and Sonos. I would like to be able to switch from each preset in my Sonos tab using Siri instead of having to do it manually on the phone. Sure would be nice if Siri added some shortcuts to the app, says Jason. Thanks, Jason. Good to hear from you. Well, there is no way to do this that I am aware of, even with a third-party app. However, all new Sonos speakers support AirPlay, so you might just want to play things directly from your phone using AirPlay, and I find that works really well. I can say something like, play Mushroom FM in the living room, and it will just play it using AirPlay. And since Sonos uses AirPlay too, it's really quite reliable and flexible because you can group all the rooms that you want to group using Control Center. But it doesn't take away from your point. It would be great if they added Siri integration with the Sonos app itself. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. More technology memories coming in. Stan Luttrell says, I don't know if you got this where you are, but I once received a GW Micro keychain with GW Micro written in Braille directly on the unit. I still use that keychain today, and it goes with me everywhere. 
I'm so proud of having that. I do remember that keychain stand and I've got one too. And I actually, I think I took it home because they were giving away a freebie at some convention or other and I picked it up. I took it home and it took me a while to realize, hey, this has got GW Micro written in Braille on it. And yes, I used it for many years until it got replaced with a Beatles keychain that one of my kids gave me. Jonathan, I had to send you another message when you started talking about the Clark and Smith um, talking book machine. I had one of those when I finally uh, lost my sight when I was eight years old. And it was an absolute revelation. It, it really was the gateway to my education, my literary education in the great works of English literature. But it was an extraordinary machine, huge thing with these massive cartridges, which often got chewed up. Uh, and they'd often arrive and you couldn't really listen to them because you couldn't hear the words. They were so muffled and you had to send them back and hope they'd send you a replacement really quickly. And they had these wonderfully formal announcements. Uh, so it would say, track one begins immediately. And then at the end of track one, it would say, that is the end of track one. Turn off the machine, remove the cassette, turn it over and replace it in the machine. Then press the track change button once. Do this now. And of course, you wouldn't disobey that kind of message, would you? Uh, but I absolutely loved the, loved them. And as I say, was educated through that that whole um, process. Um, but the, the the extraordinary thing about them is that the the, the sort of noises that the copying process must have. Uh, I assume it was the copying process, but it created the most extraordinary noises in the background of these recordings. So while you were listening, suddenly um, you would hear this sort of then they're kind of sort of extraterrestrial, sort of sea monsterish, weird noises. And you think, obviously, that's not happening in the studio. Where on earth? Are those noises coming from? I, I've never discovered what that was, but they were very, very peculiar and just sort of part of the whole listening experience. But very fond memories. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to go back to those cartridges, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sitting here laughing away at that, Gary. That was brilliant. Yes, I do remember all of that. The formal announcements, because we got those RNIB cassettes as well. Do this now. And uh, I do remember the weird noises. The closest thing that I've heard to it commercially was, I think it started in the 1980s. If you bought a commercial cassette with music on it, they would start putting these very strange ascending noises, a sort of boo 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 It was like quite melodic and very high-pitched by the end of it, and it would appear at the end of each side of the tape. And the first time I heard it, I thought, wow, that's like space-like, dude. I wonder what that is for. And I don't know whether... There was some equipment or other that would automatically turn the tape over for you when it heard those beeps or what precisely they were for. But it was odd. But yes, there were some very strange things in the background. And uh, some of the duplications were better than others. You could sort of hear other books in the background sometimes as well. Off to Sweden we go for this inquiry from Bo. I'm using the new Microsoft Edge and I think it's a very good browser. There's just one problem. I don't know how to deactivate the Microsoft Translator. It translates everything in the English language into terribly bad Swedish. It even translates song titles and artist names. Is there a good and accessible way to get the content of a website in its original language? I'm using JAWS 2020. 
Thank you so much. I will give you a demo of how to fix this. I will Alt-Tab into Microsoft Edge. Intranet Home Home Personal Microsoft Edge. And now I'll press Alt-F. Menu. Settings and more menus. And S. Leaving menus. Untitled Microsoft Edge. Banner region. App launcher button menu. Sync is on. Settings Microsoft Edge. Now we're in settings. I'm going to go to the combo box control by pressing C. Tree view item. Profiles. And press enter. Navigation region. And our down arrow. Zero. Privacy. Appearance. On startup. New tab page. Site permissions. Default browser. Downloads. Family safety. Languages. There's languages. I'll press enter. Languages. 10 of 15. Vert- and we'll never get through these controls. Separator. Min 0 max 100. Preferred languages add languages button. More actions for English United States. More actions for English button menu. I'm just pressing My- F to navigate by form control at the moment. Offer to translate pages that aren't in a language I read. Checkbox checked. That's your problem right there. The Option that says offer to translate languages that aren't in a language I read. And if you uncheck this box, your problems will go away. If only there were other boxes we could uncheck to make all our other problems go away. I hope that helps. Hi again, Jonathan, says Kelly Sapircha. In my previous message regarding iOS 14, I mentioned that I missed using Steve's talking clock. After sending the message, I discovered that the site clock.steve-audio.net, that's clock.steve-audio.net, is back, and the program and its voice files are available again. I haven't installed it as yet, but plan on doing so later. Plus, from what I've seen so far, the program appears to now be free. Thanks very much, Kelly, for that tip-off because Debbie Armstrong also mentioned this a few weeks ago. So glad it's back. And for those who want to check this out, it's essentially a way to have on your computer a lot of those vintage talking clock sounds we've been talking about here on Mosin at Large over the last few weeks. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.